Galatians chapter 1. We might start to read at verse 6. The Apostle Paul writing says, I marvel. Or we might say, I am amazed that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. It's a very strong verse. But to make sure that he's not misunderstood, he repeats himself in verse 9 and says, As we said before, so say I now again. If any man preach any other gospel unto you than that you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Amen. Galatians, I know there are various levels of Bible knowledge here, and that's a good thing. The church in this area was born like most of the churches we read of in the New Testament in the book of Acts. And the Apostle Paul, uh, most of us are familiar with the fact that Paul himself in the book of Acts had an incredible conversion experience. He was a scholar. He was a man, it would appear from what we can ascertain from the scripture, a man of great intellect, a man who knew the Old Testament law. He was a student of the Scriptures. He knew the Word of God and was, it again, we're a little bit of, uh, maybe not guesswork, but assumption that he enjoyed debating over the Scripture. He enjoyed taking people to task who he believed were, their understanding was maybe a little offline with the Old Testament. And such was his passion for the, the scripture for the law of Moses that when this new phenomenon came to town called Christianity, that he decided that it was going to be his life's mission to, to stamp this thing out, to, to crush it, to get rid of it. To, it was false doctrine. It was wrong. It was against the scripture. And he wanted to be involved in, in doing everything he could to get rid of this new sect or this new uh, group of people. And so in his passion and in his enthusiasm for God. You have to remember the Apostle Paul, who was at that time Saul of Tarsus, believed that he was serving God. And in that passion, he had people pulled out of their houses and thrown into prison. And you even read that when Stephen was stoned to death, Paul was standing by. But on, in, in that fervency, he got authority from the rulers of the religious rulers to go to Damascus, and if, there were, if he found Christians there, he was given the power and the authority to have them thrown into prison. But if you know the story of what happened on the road to Damascus, it's become known, we often refer to it in Christian circles as having a Damascus Road experience, because the Lord arrested the Apostle Paul's attention, miraculously shined a light upon him and spoke to him, and revealed himself to Paul, and suddenly everything that Paul thought that he knew was turned upside down. His confidence 
in what he felt he knew about God had been completely just torn to shreds. And in a short period of time, he had to, in many ways, relearn who God was. But really what happened to Paul was he was actually getting the right understanding of the scripture that he already had. His understanding of the Old Testament changed when he came to realize that this Jesus of Nazareth that revealed himself to Paul was actually the one that the whole Old Testament was preparing the way for. And so Paul's new understanding illuminated his old understanding and he was able to put the two together. And so as a, as a new Christian in the book of Acts, after some time of getting some training and spending time with men like Barnabas, he became a missionary and really uh, is possibly the greatest New Testament example of, of missions. He, he left the comfort of his home country and he traveled to many places to take the gospel and was either directly or indirectly responsible for the founding of many of the New Testament churches. But if you know much about the New Testament, you also know that wherever Paul went, wherever he planted a church, wherever he shared the gospel, there seemed to be people that came along either at the same time or followed him close behind that tried to bring confusion to the church, that tried to tell these New Testament Christians that they also had to do the things that they were delivered from in the Old Testament. And Paul, if you look at Paul's ministry, you find that he spends a lot of time dealing with this situation. He spends a lot of time trying to remind and reinforce and repeat and reinstate and any other R word that means say it again, trying to get them to understand those things do not belong to the New Testament church. And when we read in Galatians here in chapter 1 how he says, he says, I marvel, I am amazed how quickly you've left the gospel that we preached unto you. And you've gone to, he calls it another gospel, but then just so that to be sure that it's, he doesn't want us to think that it's, it's a choice situation here, he says it's actually not a gospel. He said it's not a gospel, but it's, it's false. And, and then he says very passionately, though, he said, there are those that would trouble you that would pervert the gospel. He said, but if we, including self in that, he said, if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached, it doesn't say, you know, get together and have fellowship and don't split hairs over the different stuff. He said, let him be accursed. And we use this passage of scripture to uh, address the importance, I guess you could say, of having doctrinal accuracy, of doing what the Bible says. And let me be emphatic this morning, we must do what the Bible says. The only truth we have is that which is contained within the pages of God's Word. And so we must be very careful that what we preach, what we teach, what we practice, what we believe is very clearly and securely fastened to the rock that is Jesus Christ and the Word of God that He has given us. But Paul, really, Paul is dealing with here that problem that seemed to follow him wherever he went and when you read the whole epistle of Galatians and we're going to pick out a few bits and pieces this morning but when you there there is no epistle really that addresses the subject as directly as Galatians does the underlying theme that that goes through this letter is the fact that what we have in the church is superior is better and has replaced what they had under the old covenant of Moses 
And it is very, it's, he meets it head on here in the book of Galatians. He, he also deals with it in other areas, but in Galatians it seems to be the focal point of Paul's message of his ministry. And he is emphasizing the fact that those things that they kept in the Old Testament, he said, they are not the things that save us. And he's warning them about bringing those things into the New Testament. And the, the question is, particularly if this is a subject that you're not very familiar with, the question is, what was wrong with the Old Testament law? Did God make something that was bad? I mean, God can't make anything that's bad. If God made it, it's good. And so the question is, why did it need to be replaced? And you could, you could spend a lot of time studying that this morning, but the issue with the law in the Old Testament was not the law. The issue was with humanity. And the fact that the law was unable to be kept in man's own strength. And the thing that the Lord did very successfully was reveal to humanity that they were sinners. But through that law, mankind was unable to stop themselves from being sinners. And the law, at the end of the day, really served to say, you're in sin and not necessarily provide the solution that they needed. Now, had they been able to keep the law, there would have been nothing wrong with the law. But if you... I don't want to get too sidetracked on this this morning, but if you study the Scripture, you'll see that the law, and we'll see some of this in the, in the next couple of chapters, the law was given to preserve God's Word, to, to make a pathway for His Messiah to come. It was given that we might have... He chose a nation, He said, in you, it's, it's, it's through you that I'm going to bring the Messiah that will not only be your Savior, but will be the Savior of the whole world. It wasn't that the things that were in the law were wrong but that simply doing certain actions by themselves did not make us righteous. Righteousness comes when our hearts are right before the Lord, which produces right actions. Actions alone do not produce righteousness. Do not misunderstand me to believe that, that I'm saying you can do whatever you like and be righteous. That is not my message. But actions in isolation are simply actions. But when the heart is made right, when we are born again of water and spirit and our heart's desire is to please the Lord, there are things that are required of us to live in a righteous fashion. But you can't simply say, well, I went to church every night this week, therefore I'm righteous. Now, I would suggest to you that going to church helps towards becoming more righteous. In fact, I would say that the Bible indicates that as we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ, we should, we should be getting together more, not less. But look at Christianity around about us. People are so busy, they're getting together less, not more. Many of us that grew up in church remember that going to church every single service was the norm. Not so nowadays. But the question is, is this coming closer or further? And if it's closer, then we need to be getting together as much, if not more, than we ever did. Amen. That's what the Scripture says. The more so as you see the day approaching. But it is not simply being in this building that makes us righteous. But when we get together like we have this morning and we worship the Lord and we allow the Lord to minister to us and we allow the Lord to change us and to transform us and we encourage one another, that's the benefit of being here. If you come in here and none of that takes place, it's good to be here, but you're not getting everything that God wanted you to get. Because getting together is not just about physical location, it's about spiritual transformation. 
That's what it's about. And I believe, and you can take me to task on this if you'd like to afterwards, but I believe that there are things that God does when his people get together that do not happen on your own. Because getting together is his plan. It's his idea. Now we could say, well, in the book of Acts and in the first century, they didn't have church buildings. Yes, that's true. It's not about the building. It's about the together. That's what makes the difference. And so Paul, Paul was wrestling with this ongoing problem of stop trying to bring all these regulations upon the New Testament church that were from the law of Moses that they don't need to keep. He said it's a new covenant, it's a new way. And you, you read, let's, where are we going to go next? Let's go to chapter 3. I'd like to read the whole epistle, but we'd be here for a long time. So I'm not going to do that. So in, in chapter 1, Paul says, I'm amazed at how quickly you've, you've turned to a different direction. He's quite amazed that it happened. And then in just as a complimentary fashion, in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians. How would you like it if I get up here next Sunday morning? He said, Oh, foolish Northside Pentecostal Church. You're all fools. Be a lot less people here the following Sunday morning. And I would be a fool to do that. But the Apostle, Apostle Paul was quite direct and he said, Oh, foolish Galatians. I read once somewhere in a modern translation that it said something like, Oh, stupid Galatians. I don't think Paul was really saying that. But he's saying, who hath bewitched you? Who has introduced this confusion to you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you? And then he said, this only would I learn of you. In other words, he said, I got one question. Received you the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Again, pretty straight. Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect or are you now completed by the flesh? It's a very important question. And this morning, one of the things we need to establish first is when it says having begun in the Spirit. How do you begin in the Spirit? Sometimes we read Scripture and we don't stop to think, but what does that really mean? When we begin in the Spirit, it's when our spiritual life begins. So we are born again of water and Spirit. We repent of our sins. We're baptized in Jesus' name. And we are filled with the Holy Ghost, which is evidenced by speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives the utterance. That's how we begin in the Spirit. But Paul said, if that's how you began, why would you think that you can complete this process in the natural? Why would you think that having, if it took something supernatural to start this process, if it took the miraculous power of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ to get you alive spiritually... Why would you be so foolish, that's what he said, as to think that you can finish this job in your own strength and in your own ability? Amen. But again, you see, I'll probably say this several times, but the, the lesson, so often in Scripture there are layers of things to learn. And the, the epistle is about not the law, but the gospel. Not the law, but the gospel. But what's the lesson there for you and I? 
None of us are Jews, as far as I'm aware. None of us are trying to keep Moses' law. So do we just say, well, that doesn't really apply to me. That belonged to the New Testament church. No, there is a principle there of still being able to walk in the Spirit and not serve our flesh. Because the going back to depending upon the law of Moses was going back to trusting in what they did, not what he did. And if we begin in the Spirit, but then for whatever reason we are foolish enough to go back to the flesh, Paul's saying, how do you think that's going to go? How do you think that is going to work for you if you go back to being in the flesh? Amen. Because he said, but if you go further along in chapter 3, maybe let's go along to verse 22. It says, but the scripture has concluded all under sin. Everybody's a sinner. That the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, before Jesus came, before the gospel came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. That was the purpose of the law, to prepare and preserve until the time of Jesus Christ. But before faith, I read that already, verse 24. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. If you read earlier in that chapter later in your own time, you'll see that Abraham fits in this, this uh, discourse, this, this epistle in the sense that he was in a relationship with God before there was a law. He obeyed God by faith. And that was his covenant with the Lord. And when we come into the New Testament church, by faith we are the children of Abraham. Not through that natural lineage. That's why he said, you're not Jews, you're not Greeks, you're not rich, you're not poor, you're not male, you're not female. It doesn't mean that those things don't exist. The, the, The distinction between male and female is of God. But what it's saying is everybody that obeys the gospel by faith has the same standing in the sight of the Lord, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of culture, regardless of wealth or the absence of wealth. We all have the same standing with the Lord. And then in chapter 4, in chapter 4 it says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. So when they were under the law... They were like little kids. Whether you're the king's child or you're just the servant's child, when you're a child, you do what you're told. You go to school, you learn. He says in verse 2, that's what it says. It's under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. So in other words, you are, you remember, biblical times, if you have a son, he is to learn from his father. Grow up and usually nearly all the time would follow in the family business, whatever that was. If dad was a carpenter, you became a carpenter. We see that in Jesus Christ and his humanity. If dad was a farmer, you were a farmer. If he was a shepherd, you were a shepherd. Whatever dad did, the son would grow up under that authority until there was a time that the father decided it's time for him 
to take over the family business, to step into a role of authority. And that's in verse 3. It says, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Now, who, are, who is he talking about here? Even so we, when we were children. I believe there's a twofold application. One is talking about the nation of Israel in that because of the law, they were in bondage because they couldn't keep the righteousness of the law. But the second is also talking about the Gentiles to whom Paul is writing, who were in sin and under the rule of sin. But then he said in verse 4, when the fullness of time was come, in other words, when the Father decided that it was time, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the Lord, to redeem them that were under the Lord, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That word Abba being an intimate way of saying Daddy. Or Papa, we might say. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So when we come to the gospel, whether we look at Israel as having been under Moses' law, or Gentiles, everybody say, you and me are Gentiles. We're all Gentiles. We're all in sin. But when we come to the gospel, we have the opportunity to become the sons of God. We're not servants anymore. We're the children of God. How? By His Spirit that He gives us. We are filled with His Spirit. When you read... Try and keep this in order. Slow down a little bit. Bless the Lord. We read on, and this is where I probably want to get to the most this morning. When you read on into verse 22 of chapter 4, I'm sorry if I'm a little bit all over the place. It just keeps you awake. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 22 says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid or a servant girl, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. Everybody say, after the flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise. Everybody say, by promise. Which things are an allegory? That word means they're, they're an example, they're a pattern, it's to show us something. It's, not, it's, 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 a, it's, it's something that actually happened, it's not a made-up story, but it happened to teach us something, to show us something in the New Testament church. They're an allegory for these are the two covenants, okay? The one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar, or Hagar, which was the name of Abraham's wife's servant. Okay, for this Agar or Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. Let me pause there for a moment. Paul was saying that covenant that Agar represents says it's Sinai. What happened to Mount Sinai in the Old Testament? Anybody tell me? See, anybody's awake this morning. Come on, don't be shy. Somebody speak up so I can hear you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Somebody heard. The law was given. Moses went up the mountain and he got the law from the Lord. And so he is saying that, he said, that covenant, Hagar was symbolic of that covenant and it, was, it, is, it is bondage. And he said, right now, Jerusalem, which now is, in other words, Israel, he said, you're still in that bondage because they rejected Jesus. But then he goes on and he says, but Jerusalem, which is above, 
Now, where in the world is Jerusalem above? Jerusalem, which is above, has a twofold application. One is it speaks of the new Jerusalem, which is the heavenly city, where we will go to be with the Lord when he returns. But it also speaks of the church in the present, right now. We are a part of that new covenant that is represented by the new Jerusalem. It's not in bondage, it's free. And it is the mother of us all. In other words, Jew or Gentile, we all belong. And then in verse 27, this is what he says, and he's quoting from Isaiah 54 in verse 1. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then, as it was in Abraham's time, he that was born after the flesh, that was Ishmael, and we'll get to that a little bit in a moment, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit. He said, even so it is now. He said, it's happening now. He said, nevertheless, what says the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not the children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Now, there's a lot of Jewish history in those few verses. But if you go back to the book of Genesis, don't turn there now because I'll just give it to you. As, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. I'll try to condense it a bit. If you go back to the book of Genesis, early on you find a man named Abram. And Abram lives in a place called Ur of the Chaldees, which means it's quite possible that at that early stage of Abram's life, we know him as Abraham later on, that he was a moon worshipper. That's what they were moon worshippers in that place where he came from. But something in Abraham's heart caused God to begin to speak to him and call him to leave that place and to go out somewhere. Now, very early on it tells us that Abraham's wife's name was Sarai, which was later changed to Sarah, that it says very early that Sarah was barren. She had no kids, couldn't have kids. Something was wrong physiologically with Sarah. She was unable to have children. But the Lord said to Abraham, if you will go out to a place that I will show you, he said, from you, I will make a nation. And very early in the piece, he said to Abraham, and in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed, which was prophesying about Jesus Christ. So Abraham's married. They can't have any kids. And yet God speaks to him and says, if you'll do what I say, if you'll trust me, if you'll have faith, I'm going to, from you, I'm going to bring forth not just a son, but a nation. And through that nation, the Messiah that will bless the entire earth. And so we know that Abraham, he gets up and he begins the process of looking for this city that has foundations. He begins to follow the instructions of the Lord based upon these promises. But his wife is still not any closer to having children. And if you, look, if you know the story, eventually, eventually God miraculously gives them a son. But the time frame between when Abraham left his father's hometown... And God miraculously gave them a son is at least about 25 years. It's a long time to wait for a promise. It's a long time when there is, you see, there's no doctors. There's no clinics. There's no way you can go and get tests and all this and try to find ways to maybe address the, the medical problem. They just were not having kids. 
And Abraham, through this process, is getting wealthy. His flocks are getting bigger. His herds are bigger. He's, he's even got some material wealth. So when you think about Abraham's extended family, how many people do you think were there? Servants, shepherds, people that looked after the cattle. He had a lot, and they're all getting married. You want to know how many baby showers that Sarah probably went to in those 25 years? If they had baby showers. Whatever they did, they celebrated birth. When the child was born, especially a son, it was celebrated. Sarah had to go through that again and again and again. She had to hold somebody else's baby when she'd never had a child. And it got to a point where their faith got a little bit shaky and be very slow to cast stones at them because ours gets there probably a little faster than theirs did. But their, their faith got a little bit shaky. And, and Sarah decided to address a spiritual situation with a natural solution. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, having begun in the spirit, are you now made complete in the flesh? She took something that was a spiritual covenant that God had made with her husband and with her as well, and she tried to fix it with a human solution. And she took her servant, gave her servant to her husband and said, maybe this is what God meant. You will have a child with my servant, we'll adopt the child or however it worked, and there we go. Abracadabra, we've got our problem. Got our solution. And they rejoiced and they thought, this is wonderful. Abraham's got a son, slightly dysfunctional family arrangement there because he's got a wife, but he's had a baby with the servant girl. A little bit weird, but hey, they've got the solution. But God comes to Abraham and says, nope, wrong. And he said, I gave you the promise. I'm going to fulfill the promise. And a little more time goes by, and we, if you read the story, you see the angels come and they visit, and then the Lord speaks to Abraham and says, about this time next year or whatever, your wife's going to have a baby. His wife, who at this stage is you know, starting to decide what kind of cake she wants to make for Abraham's 100th birthday party. She's in the tent, and she hears him, and she laughs. She laughs. She thinks, me? Really? She knows her body. She knows how old she is. She knows that any of those capabilities are long gone. But the Lord made a promise. And as God is true to his word, a hundred-year-old man got to take his little boy to kindergarten. I've said it before, but you imagine you know, what it was like, you know, new parents group. There's all these 30-year-old couples with their babies, and here comes Methuselah and his wife. This hundred-year-old man turns up for, you know, introduce your kids to daycare class. And they're like, wow. But they were so proud. They were so happy. There was so much joy. That's why Isaac's name means laughter. Because Sarah said, God has made me to laugh. She laughed in doubt at first. But then she laughed in celebration when the Lord fulfilled his promise. But as Paul said, he said, what happened back then was the older child that was made by flesh, begin to persecute the younger child that was made by promise. He said, it's still happening now. He said, the gospel comes by promise and by the miraculous power of Jesus Christ and those from that Old Testament covenant are still giving them a hard time. He said, it hasn't 
changed. But what you see through the Old Testament, through the Old Testament you'll see that nearly every time that God entered into covenant with a man, his wife was barren. It wasn't something in the water. It wasn't just, it was God saying, you can't do this without me. He called Abraham, he knew Sarah was barren. He called him anyway and he made the promise. Knowing that even though Abraham and Sarah couldn't, he could. And then that miracle child Isaac, he finds himself married to someone named Rebecca. And what do you know, Rebecca's barren as well. She can't have kids either. And God gives the same promises to Isaac that he gave to his dad, but it's the same situation. All right, Lord, if we're supposed to be going to have in this nation and stuff, we can't even have a kid. And so the Bible says that Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife, and the Lord opened her womb, and, and Rebecca became pregnant with the twins that we now know as Esau and Jacob. And they were fighting before they were even born. They're fighting in the womb. And, and Rebecca basically says, Lord, what in the world is going on? And the Lord says, there's two nations in your womb, you know, this and that, and the, younger, the older one's going to serve the younger. And so when they're born, even though they did it deceitfully, Jacob inherits the birthright and the blessing. And then you read the story of Jacob, which dominates a lot of the book of Genesis. He finds himself married to two sisters. Now that... Words fail me. Can you, I mean, having two wives alone is a danger, but two sisters. And the Bible says that the Lord saw that Leah was hated, the older sister, and so he opened her womb. Leah starts having sons. First, I think, was Reuben, and then I, I don't remember all the order of the tribes of Israel, but she's having these kids. And you have to remember that culturally... Now, nowadays, ladies, I'm sorry if you don't like this, but culturally, a wife's primary purpose was to give her husband a son and probably you know, cook some meals along the way as well. But the primary purpose was to provide a man-child that could inherit the family name, that could continue to provide for the family, to lead the family. It wasn't just about that maternal instinct. There was, there was a lot more society pressure. And if you were unable to bear children, it was a shameful thing. And so here's Leah, who's hated, who's having all these sons. And even though she wasn't Jacob's first choice, they're his boys. And Rachel gets angry and says to Jacob, give me children lest I die. And Jacob says, what, am I God? And so Rachel goes back to the whole fleshly solution that grandma sarah had tried and says you take my servant girl and we'll we'll have kids with her and we'll call them my kids and we'll introduce this whole dysfunctional family process all over again and so then rachel's servant girl has some sons and now you read it it basically says rachel basically says i've been in this battle with my sister and now i'm winning that's what it says not in those exact words but then so Leah seems to stop having kids, and so Leah says, I'm not going to lose this fight. And she brings her servant girl into the picture, and they start having kids with it. And it's, it's like battle of the mothers. It's like who's going to have the most sons wins the prize. And it's an absolute war zone. It is a war zone. And then finally, the Lord opens Rachel's womb, and she's able to have children the normal way, 
with her husband rather than bringing in extra people. But all the way through, it took God's intervention. The, the thing that's, that God seems to be repeating through this process is, if I make a promise, you can't fulfill it. If I say that I'll do something, don't worry about the how. Trust me. Just trust me. And every time they tried to fulfill the promises of God naturally, they made a disaster. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Did you begin this thing in the spirit? Are you going to finish it in the flesh? And the, the message is repeated, but it doesn't even stop with Rachel. You get into the book of Judges. The Bible tells us about a man whose name was Manoah. And it says his wife was barren. It's like, is there any ladies in the Old Testament that can have kids? It's like everybody's wife is barren. But then an angel appears to his wife and tells her she's going to have a son. And that's where we get Samson from. Again, a barren situation where the intervention of God provided a miracle which provided a deliverer for the nation of Israel. Now we know that Samson messed a lot of stuff up, but how he was introduced took the power of God. Then you jump a little bit further to 1 Samuel and you read about a woman whose name was Hannah and she's in another one of these dual marriage situations. She's married. Her husband seems a decent guy, but there's two wives in the mix. And again, you've got one having kids and another one that can't. And the one that's having kids is giving the one that can't a hard time. And parents say, oh, you're not a real wife. You, you can't do this. You can't do that. And it's a horrible situation. And Hannah, in her desperation, goes to the house of God and begins to pray with such in an earnest fashion and says, God, if you will give me a son. I will give him back to you. And the priest, Eli, misunderstands. He thinks she's drunk. And we, we, we get tough on Eli because he misunderstood. But we probably misunderstood some people's intentions along the way as well. But the Lord answers her prayer. And that's where we get the prophet Samuel from. Who became an incredible man of God. In a time when the Bible says there was no open vision. And the nation was basically backslid. Eli was a failure because he didn't sort his boys out. His sons were causing all kinds of sin and wickedness in the temple. And God positioned this young boy. And the, the, I think the scripture says something like he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. Every time Samuel spoke from God, he'd heard from God. He'd heard from God. He, and God used him. We know about what happened with Saul and then with David. But God did the miraculous again and again and again. And every time... Why did God choose situations with barren women? Because he needed, or he rather, he wanted to demonstrate, you can't do it. You can't do it yourself. If you've begun this thing in the Spirit, the only way it's going to finish is in the Spirit. You cannot fulfill the promises of God yourself. Because even when we get to the New Testament, you get to the Gospel of Luke, the Bible tells us about an old man named Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. And guess what? Elizabeth's barren. Yet another old couple that can't have kids. Of all the priests that he could have chosen, he chooses an old couple that everybody knew were childless. Everybody knew she couldn't bear a child. 
And the angel of the Lord appears to Zacharias while he's going about his business one day. And strangely enough, he has a hard time believing it. And the Lord says, the angel says, you're not going to speak until the child is born. And that older couple, who everybody knew was barren, bring forth a son, who we know as John the Baptist, was born to prepare the way of the Lord. Again, out of something that could not bring life. See, the prophecy was there in the Old Testament. The prophecy was there. The Lord said, there's going to be one that comes in the spirit of Elijah and he's going to make wait straight the puzzle. It was there. God said he'd do it. But there was no way that they could do it. He had to do it through them miraculously. And it went even a step further. You see, when God chose to reveal himself in flesh, he didn't even worry about somebody who was barren. He chose, the Bible says, a virgin shall be with child. He still did the miraculous to reveal himself to the people. And we've got to, as Christians, the, the message of Galatians here is not simply about, you know, stay away from the Old Testament law. I don't see that being a problem for us. I'm not having any conversations with people telling me, you know, Pastor, I really think we need to reintroduce the covenant of circumcision or we, we need to start offering sacrifices again or, or we need to make sure that our garments aren't made of mixed fibers. And all, nobody comes to me with those questions. It's not a problem for the church, but what is the message for us if the scripture is for us? It's not about Moses. It's not about Mount Sinai or Hagar or Sarah Abraham. It's about if you've begun this thing in the spirit, the only way it's going to finish is the way it began. If he gave you new life that you could not give yourself, it's only by that same power that you can finish this thing. Because what can so easily happen is that we get born again of water and spirit and we rejoice in that new life and then we fall into the habits of humanity and we start trying to do spiritual things through carnal methods and it does not work and just like Abraham, just like Rachel and Leah, it creates more problems than it gives us solutions. Because we're trying to do something that God said, you can't. And we say, I'm going to try anyway. And we mess it up. And that's not the way that God wants us to operate. Hallelujah. You read about it in Romans, I think it's chapter 8, where it talks about the carnal mind being enmity with the Lord. It says how the, the, the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God and it can't be. In fact, there's, there's a strong opposition. We read that passage of Scripture in Romans 8 sometimes and we, our thinking is that it's talking about when we were sinners. How that the sinful mind cannot somehow work. And that's true. But it's written to a church. It's not written to sinners. It's written to born-again believers and the warning is for them. If your mind is carnal, it cannot be submitted to the law of God. In fact, they are, it is in strong opposition. And the warning that he gives in Romans 8 is very similar to the warning that he gives in Galatians. You need to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. Because your natural thinking, there's really... You know what the most dangerous thing in an apostolic church is? Carnal Christians. Now really there's no such thing as a carnal Christian. 
Because if you're carnal, you're not really a Christian. But sinners are not a problem for the church. Demon-possessed people are not a problem for the church. Brother Billy Cole is famous for saying, I can cast out evil spirits. He said, I can't cast out flesh. And that's the thing. Christians operating in humanity is one of the most dangerous things that the church can have. That's why the scripture says, if you walk in the spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Let's turn over a page. Let's go to chapter 5. Before we read here, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? You need to ask these questions. You read the Bible, you go, yeah, we need to walk in the Spirit. What does that mean? What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? I get around in some cloud. You know, people see this cloud moving down the footpath. There goes the pastor again. He's just walking in the Spirit. That's not what it means. To walk in the Spirit requires basically the same process it did to get into the Spirit. How did we become spiritually alive? We're born again. What does it mean to be born again? We repent of our sins. In other words, we acknowledge that we're wrong. We turn around. We walk away from sin. We walk towards God. We're baptized in Jesus' name. We have our sins washed away. That's obedience to the gospel. We're then filled with the Spirit that only He can give, that we can't fake How do you receive the Holy Ghost? Now, I don't want somebody to tell me you speak in tongues. That's the evidence of receiving the Holy Ghost. But to receive the Holy Ghost requires what? Surrender. Belief. God, not my will, but yours. I give my life to you. That's what it takes to receive the Holy Ghost. It takes believing in God, knowing that God loves you, and just surrendering yourself to Him. That's why He uses other tongues. Because it's that one little part of our body that we have enough trouble controlling. And when we surrender to Him, He has control of it. So if that's how you're born of the Spirit, that's exactly how you walk in the Spirit. There has to be an ongoing state of repentance. God, I don't want to serve my flesh. I want to turn away from that. I want to put that to death. I want to finish that and I want to walk towards you. You don't get baptized every day, but obedience is still a part of your daily life. Obedience to the Word of God, to the teaching we receive from the Word of God, to applying it. When you apply teaching to the, of the Word of God to your life, that's obedience. If you hear the Scripture taught and it says thus and thus and thus, and you see that it's the Bible, and you apply that, you might not think of it, but that's actually obedience. And then there is that being filled with the Spirit. It's not necessarily speaking in tongues every hour, but it's that state of being surrendered and being yielded and saying, Lord, my life is yours. That's how you walk in the Spirit. It's the same way you get in. It's the same way you walk. Again, we're not baptized every day. We're not filled with the Holy Ghost for the first time every day. But it is that ongoing process of death to flesh, obedience to the Word, surrender to the Holy Ghost. Death to flesh, obedience to the Word, surrender to the Holy Ghost. That's walking in the Spirit. It's not some weird, wild, out there, crazy, ooby-gooby stuff, you know, spooky. It's not about that. It's about walking in the Spirit of the Lord. Death to self, obedience to the word, surrender to the spirit. You do that daily, you're walking in the spirit. That's what it is. We Sometimes we over-spiritualize, and it is very spiritual, and it is very powerful, but it's not hard to understand. You don't have to wait till you've served the Lord for 50 years and climbed some mountain and met some guru. It's in the book. If Paul said walk in the spirit, he wasn't saying, hey, let's see, I'm trying to work this out for the next 2,000 years. 
He was giving us instruction that we could keep. God never gives His Word and says, that'll keep them talking for a while. He, he gives it to us so that we can obey it and apply it in our lives. Amen. Where were we? Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. It says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Now there's a well-abused word in Christianity. Liberty means we're not under bondage. I think you read the first verse of the chapter. It says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty. Don't be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Liberty means we're not under that old covenant. We're under a new covenant where there is, there is a freedom. But that freedom is also to choose to serve God and to choose to obey them. Because you read on, he says, Only, he says, use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Don't use that liberty to serve your flesh. So that's not liberty, that's abuse. He said, but by love, serve one another. For all the law, and this is where Paul really wants to get it down to. All the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. If we love our neighbors as ourselves, which cannot happen without the Holy Ghost. Romans 5 and 5, the love of God is shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Ghost. If we love our neighbors as ourselves... There's a, hopefully a good chance we're not going to kill them. That'll take care of that part of the law. We won't steal. We won't covet. We won't commit adultery. There's a whole lot of things in the law that have to do with man's relationship with each other. But if I love them as I love myself, those things don't even, they're not even entertained. That's the goal. That's the goal. It's interesting. I'm just going to digress for just a moment here. We read verse 14, yes. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On Friday night at, at, uh, at our men's meeting, Brother David Barrera, medium, medium David, um, he taught a Bible study, which was really good. And it was, it, the, the, the theme of it was about growing in maturity as Christians. And some of the words that we considered were things like offense and forgiveness and pressure. I think they were the three, am I right? Yeah. And um, which really ties in with what the Lord's been ministering to us about over the last period of time. But, you know, when you look at the word offense, and this is something I found interesting. You may have seen this before. I may be late to the party. But in 1 John chapter 2, the scripture says, so that I don't make it up, it says this. It says, He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. Now, when you, that's, that phrase, occasion of stumbling, is translated from one word. It's not translated from three words, it's translated from one word. It's the same word that is translated as offense throughout most of the New Testament. And that is really the big issue with offense. The big issue with offense for Christians is that it provides an opportunity to stumble. When we are offended, it gives us that opportunity to fail, to fall, to return to flesh. And so we need to, that's why, what did Paul say in Galatians? Don't use your liberty to give occasion to the flesh. Amen. I've lost Galatians. Where's it, where's it gone? Amen. And then in, if you go back to Galatians chapter 5, you're probably still there. Verse 15 says, I'm going to read verse 14 again. No, let's go back to 13. For brethren, you have been called unto liberty. 
Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. See, people try to do that. They, when you say, well, you probably shouldn't do that as a Christian. You're challenging my liberty. I have liberty in the Lord. That's abuse of liberty. He said, don't use your liberty for an occasion to the flesh. He said, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bite and devour one another, there's a motorbike in the speaker. If you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. So when you look at the context here, if we're in the spirit, we're going to love one another. If we give occasion to the flesh and we try to package it with liberty, there's the potential here to bite and devour one another. It says, and be not consumed. That word consumes means don't destroy one another. It uses, it's during a picture when sometimes in, in, in combat people fight or even when animals fight one with another, sometimes they both lose. So don't devour one another. Don't be consumed one another. Then in verse 16, it gets back to what we were talking about. This I say then, walk in the spirit. Die to self, obey the word, yield to the Holy Ghost. And you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For if the spirit lusteth, sorry, if the, for the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the spirit, you are not under the law. Some people are afraid to talk about not being under the law because they feel like it's this big free for all, do whatever you like. But the New Testament church actually sets a higher bar than the law did. Because under the law, as long as you didn't do something, everything was okay. But in the New Testament, it's about the thought, the intent, and the action. God is interested in why as much as what. And that's what we have to remember. Amen. We, I just want to encourage you this morning, as Paul said to the Galatians, if you've started this thing in the Spirit, don't try to finish it in the flesh. It's our flesh that got us into sin in the first place. And when we walk in the flesh, it gets us into trouble again and again and again. But if we will walk in the Spirit, repent, obey the Word, yield to the Spirit, we can live a victorious life above sin, over sin, and defeat sin. Because why? He took, who preached it recently? Somebody, opposite Sister Jolena? He took captivity captive. The things that once held us, He holds them. And if we're His... Those things have no power over us. Let's stand together.